Good morning. All right, did you notice anything new coming in the front steps this morning? What was it? The railing. 50 years this church has been here, but we put in the railing. Oh, man. Well, no, really, I mean, ever since we've been here, just about ever since we've been here, people have said, you know, you've got to have a railing there. And I thought, you know, 50 years, you know, why do we need the railing? But anyway, it's, I like it. It's cool. It's a cool railing. As far as railings go, it's cool. <laughs> railing dedication one of these days, so. Now, we could actually, we do it right after second service if you want. We'll just come by and I'll be out there anyway. We can just dedicate the rail. We'll get a... Uh, uh, some, you know, one of those Starbucks cappuccinos and break it over it. Or something. <laughs> that would be a waste. But anyway, <laughs> let's open our Bibles this morning to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7, if you're visiting or new here, we're in the Gospel of Luke, studying it verse by verse and chapter by chapter. We're going to read beginning in chapter 7, verse 36, and go through into chapter 8, verse 3. Then one of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him, and he went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to eat. And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner... When she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil and stood at his feet behind him weeping. She began to wash his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head. And she kissed his feet and anointed them with the fragrant oil. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he spoke to himself saying, this man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is who is touching him for she is a sinner. And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. So he said, teacher, say it. And there was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. And when they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you have rightly judged. And then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore, I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. And then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who sat at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And then he said to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. Now it came to pass afterward that he went through every city and village, preaching and bringing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God, and the twelve were with him. And certain women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, out of whom came seven demons, and Joanna, the wife of Cusa, Herod's steward, and Susanna, and many others who provided for him from their substance. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this word. Uh, Lord, we pray that having been here this morning, we would have been encouraged by the other saints, strengthened by your scripture. Uh, amazed, Lord, that you allow us to sing to you and that you receive our worship, Lord, and into the heavenly courts. In every way, Lord, that we would know that we've been in your presence, in the presence of your glory and your grace, that we are more able and prepared, Lord, to face the struggles and trials of our lives as we leave this place this morning. More your servants, more in love with you than when we entered. We pray this morning, Lord, that you would give us wisdom to understand your word and apply it. 
We pray in Jesus' name, and those who agreed said, amen. I want you to think about Leonardo da Vinci's famous painting of the Last Supper. Everybody's seen it. With the image in your mind and apologies to Leonardo, I want to edit a few of its features. First, pull out the chairs that Jesus and His disciples are sitting on and replace them all together with low couches or cushions. Next, you'll have to cut the table legs shorter so that the table is the appropriate height for this new seating arrangement. And then take this single rectangular table and make it into three tables that are more in the shape of a U. Got that picture? Jesus and his disciples did not eat sitting on chairs around a waist-high table. They ate reclining around a low table, leaning on their left elbows on low-lying couches or pillows, using their right hands to eat with. Everyone ate that way in that culture, and that is the way Jesus ate while he was a guest at Simon's house. There are a few other things you need to know about the customs in their culture. There were several common acts of hospitality by which the host would always greet his invited guests. Upon arrival, the host would place his hand on the guest's shoulder and give him a formal cultural kiss of peace. The guest's sandals would be removed and his feet were washed when he entered so that they would be clean as he reclined around the table. You know, you're going to have somebody's feet near you. Dinner guests were also anointed with a refreshing touch of olive oil on the head. Simon wanted to dine with Jesus, but he had performed none of these customary acts of hospitality. Was he just going out of his way to insult Jesus? I don't think so. You see, even though he omitted certain customs, he did eat with the Lord. If you ate with someone, it indicated a certain degree of intimacy and fellowship. As each person broke off a piece of bread from the common loaf and dipped it in a common bowl, hopefully not double dipping, but dipped it in a common bowl, they were each being nourished by the same food. You would not invite someone to eat with you unless you were willing to be identified with that person on some level. Simon wanted to have fellowship with Jesus, but he was hesitant to go all out. The sinful woman never hesitated for a moment as she showered her love upon the Lord. Jesus explained what made the difference. The woman knew that she had been forgiven much. Simon, by comparison, was judging the woman overlooking God's forgiveness in her life and probably in his own life as well. We want to be more like the sinful woman and not like Simon. We want to maximize rather than minimize God's forgiveness of our sin. When we do, we won't hesitate, and our love for Jesus will pour forth as ointment upon his feet. We'll organize our thoughts around two points. Number one, maximize God's forgiveness, and you won't hesitate to show your love for the Lord. Number two, minimize God's forgiveness, and you will hesitate to show your love for the Lord. Let's take a look first at the woman coming to Jesus and the maximizing of God's forgiveness. We don't know why Simon invited Jesus to dine with him, but he seemed sincere in his invitation. It reminds us a little bit of Nicodemus. Nicodemus, Gospel of John chapter 3, he's interested in having fellowship with Jesus. He wants to hear what the Lord has to say. But he came somewhat secretly at night without others knowing it to talk to the Lord. He too was hesitant toward Jesus, not really wanting to go all out at that point in his life. Back to our story, Jesus accepted the invitation from Simon the Pharisee. Simon's house became a stage upon which a spiritual drama was about to be performed. Again, in verse 36, we read, Then one of the Pharisees who asked him to eat with him, and he went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to eat. And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil. 
The homes of well-to-do people, like Simon the Pharisee, were built around central courtyards in which formal meals were served. You have to not think of this in terms of your tract house or custom home with its dining room in the middle of the house. Uh, They would eat in an open courtyard surrounded by the buildings. On such occasions, the gates of their courtyard were kept open, and the uninvited townspeople were free to wander in and observe the conversation. Some commentators feel this was a particular uh, kind of a meal. There's a name for it in the Hebrew that I can't pronounce, but it was more like a Bible study group or a spiritual study group where they'd have a meal and then have a debate or a talk over the meal about spiritual issues. And people from the town would want to come and hear what was being said. They weren't invited to join in, kind of like the rules at the presidential debates. Anybody who twitches will be removed immediately and run over by a steamroller. I mean, you know, it's really... But they could come in and out, and and if you've been in some... Uh, usually some other countries, usually third world countries. I've eaten in settings like this where, you know, you're the guest of the local Christians and, and it's right on the main drag and cars are going back and forth and people are walking by. And a lot of times, actually, a crowd will stop. Uh, everywhere we went in China, there was a crowd, I'll tell you that, because, you know, you were the only Americans in Peking that week. And so uh, it, it's not an unusual thing at all. So that's the picture. The woman didn't break in through a window, you know, to get into the dining room of Simon's house. This was all very normal. Now, the woman was described as a sinner. It's been suggested that she was a prostitute or an adulteress. We're not told the nature of her sin, only its severity and the fact that it was common knowledge in their small community. Verse 38, she stood at his feet behind him weeping. And she began to wash his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head. And she kissed his feet and anointed them with the fragrant oil. When she saw Jesus, her love for him overcame her. Without hesitation, she crashed the party. Women just didn't do things like she does, especially notoriously sinful women. They never, ever let down their hair in public. They only did so in private for their husbands. It's possible she had been following the Lord and had witnessed Simon's horrible half-hearted hospitality. It was more than she could take, that anyone would refuse to give Jesus the common courtesies of their household. She stepped forward and for a time just stood at his feet behind him weeping. Perhaps she had intended to wash his feet, thinking they haven't even washed the Lord's feet, but when she got there... She had no basin filled with water and no towel, and so she improvised. Her tears would suffice for the water, and her hair would have to do for the towel. Now she was full on into it. Jesus had not received the common kiss of peace, so she kissed his feet. The Lord had not been anointed with olive oil, and so she broke the neck of an expensive flask of alabaster oil and used that fragrant oil upon him. There would have been gasps from the guests and gawkers. Everyone was thinking something similar to what Simon says to himself. Verse 39, now when the Pharisees who had invited invited him saw this, he spoke to himself saying, this man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is who is touching him for she is a sinner. A prophet ought to have spiritual discernment. Simon thought Jesus had failed the discernment test, but in a minute we'll learn that the test was for Simon, not for Jesus. Not only did Jesus know the condition of this sinful woman, he knew what Simon was thinking, so he went way beyond the test for the prophet. Now, everyone knew this woman was a sinner. Most importantly, she knew she was a sinner. It is her own awareness of her personal sin that maximized God's forgiveness in her heart. We want to be more like this woman in the story and not at all like Simon in this story. And here's what I would suggest this morning as we're talking about this. It's at least possible that we as Christians minimize rather than maximize our, uh, God's forgiveness of our sin. 
For example, maybe you don't have the greatest testimony. Anybody ever ask you to give your testimony and you think, well, it's not a really great testimony? Well, what do you, what do you mean by that? Well, if you go to a lot of evangelistic meetings or, or different settings like that, man, there are some great testimonies. The biker gal who killed people while she was high on methamphetamines. The, uh, you know, those kinds of things. The guy who murdered his, you know, these people. And, and, and I mean, you're, you're like drawn to these testimonies. And you're always, you're always and, and there's a sense, I, I feel this too. So there's a sense if you're looking for somebody to give a testimony, you look around and say, well, who's all tatted up in here? You know, who can we get that has the most radical, unbelievable testimony? That, you know, you took more drugs and drank more alcohol and beat up more people and, you know, got more tickets and, and you know, got in more trouble and we're in and out of more prisons than anybody in the room we need you today. <laughs> God has a, a use for you. You're going to give your testimony. And, and I've, you know, I've asked people sometimes or seen people who say, hey, we'd like you to give your testimony. Uh, my testimony is no big deal. Oh, Okay. And, and we are. We, and so let's just admit that we think this way, because we really do. We really do think this way. When I was a salesman, I remember before I was in the ministry, and I was a, a salesman, I was a Christian, and there was this, uh, this one realtor who, who I used to call on. He was one of my clients, and uh, his name was Larry, actually. It's all coming back to me now. But uh, he never really wanted me to talk to him much about God. He was always just put me off, except one day I got him and he was alone in, in his office, and so he felt a little bit more comfortable. You know, he wouldn't be quite as embarrassed to, to be talking about spiritual things in, in, in around his uh, colleagues. And so he, he started asking me, and, and uh, he said, Gene, he goes, let me ask you, he goes, he goes were you a, just a whacked out drug addict? And I said, well, I, I don't know that I put it that way. I mean, I took a lot of drugs, you know, and, and you know, et cetera, et cetera. And he goes, were you just like a down-in-the-gutter alcoholic? And I go, well, I think I was a drunk, but I, I, you know, I hadn't really ruined my life from it yet. You know, I was on the, and, and stuff. Were you this and were you that? How many people did you murder and where's your tats? And I, it's, it's like that kind of, I said, well, why are you asking me all this? He says, the only people I know who ever give their testimony are down in the gutter, wasted people who absolutely, of course they need God. There's no other hope for them. He goes, I don't know any normal people who are Christians from watching Christian television or anything like that because they always have these... And and it really, I've never forgotten that because what he was saying is that, look, I can't relate to that. That sounds fantastic, that God could save such a person from our point of view. From his point of view, of course God has to save a person like that, but he doesn't have to save me because I'm an all right guy. I'm a businessman. I'm a housewife. I, I, I'm doing okay. Man, if I ever end up sliding down the gutter into the drain, I'll call out to God. But in the meantime, I'm fine. And it puts a whole different spin on testimonies. Maybe we should get up and say, who has the least testimony here. Who's the person that you, you, you know, nothing was wrong in your life, but you found God and God found you. Let's, let's have that. And that would actually be just as powerful. And so that's one way we sometimes minimize God's forgiveness. Sometimes we uh, minimize God's forgiveness because we say that our sins are conditions or addictions. I don't want to get into that whole topic right now, but I do want to say that to the extent that you put the, um, well, if, if, something, if, if it's somebody else's or something else's fault, then it's minimized. If you sin because you're addicted, then it's not really your fault in one sense. And, and so in a lot of different ways as Christians, we have a tendency to minimize God's forgiveness of our sins. You and I need to maximize God's forgiveness of our sins. Whatever your testimony, you were miserable, poor, wretched, naked, and blind. All of your attempts to do good or to be good amounted to a pile of filth. 
Whatever sins you did not actually commit were made up for by the things you omitted doing. The sins you still commit are your fault, not your parents, not society's. Yet God is faithful to forgive them and to cleanse you from them. And so if nothing else this morning, we need to raise the bar and understand that maybe you weren't as bad as some other person, but you were so far from God that it doesn't really matter. And there's a maximum forgiveness going on in your life. And you should never, ever think that there's anything wrong with your testimony or anything small or less about your testimony. And in many ways, I think sometimes the person who gets up, and we may not understand it at first, but the person gets up and says, my life was fantastic. I was a successful businessman. I had a great family. I volunteered. I belonged to men's groups, women's groups, whatever it was. I was a respected leader in my community. But every night I felt a gnawing emptiness in my heart. There was nothing I could do to fill that. No material thing, no emotional thing. There was nothing until I met Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior because I realized that I was a hell-doomed sinner, miserable, naked, poor, wretched, and blind until I saw the Lord. That's a powerful testimony. And all of you who are Christians have that testimony. Now keep this in mind as we look more closely at Simon. He's going to minimize God's forgiveness. Jesus knew about the sinful woman, but he also knew about sinful Simon. The woman may have committed sins well known to others. Simon's actions towards the Lord exposed sins of omission, secret sins, sins of the Spirit that were in many ways worse than what this woman had done. Good time to tell a story. You know, I love this about Jesus, and I just want to suggest this to you. Oftentimes, when people had questions or in serious situations, situations that we would recognize as a counseling situation, Jesus decided to tell a story. And I've been, there's a few people in my life who occasionally I'll ask, you know, for advice or wisdom or counsel, and, and they'll tell me a story, sometimes a personal story, sometimes a story about somebody else, sometimes a biblical story. And at first, I'm like, okay, well, what's the answer? Can't you just tell me yes or no? And they'll tell me a story and then walk away. And then I have to figure out, who am I in that story? And, you know, it's really a powerful thing when you see yourself in a Bible story. When you tell somebody the story of the prodigal son, and then you show them, and you ask them, say, now, who would you be in that story? The father, the prodigal son, or the prodigal son's brother? And they say, oh, I'm acting like the brother, aren't I? I'm bitter and resentful and jealous at God's blessing in someone else's life. Or a lot of times I'll be talking to a, a lady who unfortunately is just, she's married to a fool. And then I'll leave the house and talk to other women as well. So, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> and, and I feel for, and, and then I'll tell the story of Nabal and Abigail from the Old Testament. Nabal, his name means fool, and he was an idiot fool in the Old Testament. But Abigail was faithful to her relationship, and God blessed her as a result of it. And you walk away thinking, okay, if Abigail could do it with God's strength, then I can. And so it's a very profound thing. Now, some people are good storytellers, but you don't have to be a good storyteller. You can just tell a good story. And the Bible is full of good stories, Old Testament and New that if you'll be open to it, I think God will give that to you. A lot of times we're looking for a precept or a principle or a verse, and I think God wants us to tell a story because that's what Jesus did, and they were always really powerful. And so Jesus tells a story, beginning in verse 40. He answered and said, Simon, I've got something to say to you. And so he said, teacher, say it. There was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. Then he said to him, you have rightly judged. A denarii was about a day's wage. 500 denarii would be impossible to repay. 50 denarii 
seemed a little more doable, although it still would be difficult on a day laborer's wage. In this case, however, it is key to realize that neither debtor had anything by which to repay. 50 denarii might as well be 500 if you have nothing. It might as well be 5 million. Without raising your hand, let me ask you, have you ever had your house in foreclosure? It's an interesting process. Back in those same days when I was selling title insurance, that's in the days of like 20 and 21 and 22% interest on homes. Housing wasn't exactly booming back then. In fact, you could hardly sell anything. And uh, so we were in trouble, couldn't pay our mortgage. And I mean, it was only a couple of hundred bucks back then, maybe 300. Couldn't pay our mortgage, fell behind in our mortgage, and so the mortgage company started foreclosure proceedings against us. And so we got together a month's mortgage and sent it to them and thought, well, that'll buy us some time. And then they sent it back. Because when you go into foreclosure, you have to bring all of the amounts current, or if the company, if the mortgage company accepts your payment, a partial payment, then they have to start the foreclosure proceedings all over again. And so here I was trying to come to up with 300 bucks so that I could make a payment. I was three payments behind, and then they sent it back to me. It might as well have been a million dollars. $900, it just didn't exist at that time. Now, we there's a whole other story for another time, but the Lord provided the money, and we didn't become destitute hobos, you know, and stuff. So, uh, but it, it, it was tough. It was, and so, you know, yeah, 50 denarii, wow, I can, if you don't have 50 denarii and you owe 50, it doesn't, it might as well be 500, might as well be 5 million. A person who believes they have been forgiven more is the person who will love more, and that's what Jesus is getting at. And then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet, but she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You didn't anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little." We need to be clear on one thing. The forgiveness of her sins was the cause of her love. Her love was the consequence of God's forgiveness. She was not forgiven because she loved, but just the opposite. She loved because she was forgiven. To put it in the context of Jesus' story, the woman had been forgiven 500 denarii worth of sin. Simon didn't really think much of himself as a sinner, but if you got to put yourself in the story, you're the 50 denarii sinner. But remember, neither debtor had anything with which to repay. Thus, both essentially were forgiven much, and both should show much love as a consequence. Simon didn't think he had anything to be forgiven, or if anything, it was very little, and so he overlooked really expressing his love for the Lord. As a result, he hesitated, and then uh, this episode unfolds, and then Jesus says to her, turns to the woman again, and says, your sins are forgiven. Now, her sins were forgiven the moment she believed. If you compare and harmonize all the Gospels, it seems that this dinner occurred right after Jesus' famous invitation in Matthew 11, where he said, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. She had heard those words, given her heart to Jesus Christ. She was a believer and now was following the Lord. She had been saved by grace through faith. Her sins had been forgiven, and the fruit of it was the love she was now showing to Jesus. By the way, let me ask you something. How do you know your sins have been forgiven? You know it because God says so. You know it because of the Word of God. Jesus looked at her and declared to her, assured her that her sins had been forgiven. And when you come to Jesus Christ and you read the Word of God and you see His sacrifice on the cross, God is saying to you, your sins have been forgiven. 
It's never a matter of whether you feel like your sins have been forgiven or, or maybe you're a greater sinner than somebody else or, or whatever. God says that if you believe on Him, give your heart to Jesus, confessing your sin, then your sins are forgiven. Verse 49, those who sat at the table with Him began to say to themselves, who is this guy who even forgives sins? He was and is God who alone can forgive sins. We can announce that God can forgive sins, but it is God who forgives them because of what Jesus has done on the cross. You are saved by faith the moment you believe. Good works motivated by love follow after your salvation. Now, he says, go in peace. It's literally go into peace. The forgiveness of your sins gives you peace with God and then you can experience the peace of God. It's sort of like when he talked to the adulterous woman in John chapter 8 and said, go and sin no more. In other words, you've been forgiven, and you have peace with God, and you have the power to say no to sin and yes to God. And so what a, that's the greatest thing really Jesus can say to a person is just go into peace. Be at peace with God. Be at peace in the world. In the world, you'll have tribulation. Be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. There's struggles within, struggles without, but you can be at the eye of that storm, at peace with God because of what Jesus has done for you. Now, the first three verses of chapter 8 really do belong with our story, and so let's read them again. It says, now it came to pass afterward that he went through every city and village, preaching and bringing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God, and the twelve were with him. And certain women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, out of whom had come seven demons, and Joanna, the wife of Cusa, Herod's steward, and Susanna, and many others who provided for him from their substance. A group of godly gals ministered to the physical needs of this traveling troop of evangelists. Three are mentioned by name. Mary called Magdalene, who had been possessed by seven demons. There is absolutely zero evidence in Scripture to indicate that Mary was an immoral woman. It's a common tradition in the Roman Catholic Church and even in some Protestant churches that Mary Magdalene was some type of a prostitute or that she was this woman in the story. She was not. There's no evidence that she was a prostitute or immoral or adulterous or anything like that. Uh, In fact, there's evidence in the Scripture that she was a woman of some social standing, very well-to-do. And so, don't think of her that way. She was not Jesus' girlfriend the way that you learn about it in Jesus Christ Superstar or other such uh, adventures like that. And she was not Jesus' wife as is being promoted by the fictitious novel, The Da Vinci Code, uh, which Christians are all Twitter-pated about right now. (laughs) As if, you know, Christians are like, oh, oh, they've discovered new documents that undermine my faith. Oh, that's not true. If you do the research, you'll find out they haven't discovered anything new. Some guy is just making a fortune on this book. Da Vinci was a weird guy. I hate to say that because he was Italian, but he was a weird guy. (laughs) And, you know, first, yeah, there's, you know, there's what looks to be a woman in in the last painting of the Last Supper, and there's a hand holding a knife, and there's all these weird things that he painted in. But as I said at the beginning of our study, it's not even what the Last Supper even looked like. I mean, we look at the Last Supper, and we think Da Vinci was there. That was some kind of a portrait. I mean, he, you know, he's, a, he's some whacked-out Italian guy that, that's too smart for his age, and he's got all these little goofy joke things going on and stuff. I mean, his life is really fascinating. Yes, he's a genius and all that, but, you know, and the, the, this book, The Da Vinci Code, it's a famous book. Now it's going to be a movie with Russell Crowe, and, uh, you know, and everybody's going to go see it, and, and it's just kind of undermining Christianity. The idea is that the church got together and squashed all this other stuff that disagreed with them, and, and, and now it's coming out. You know, Jesus didn't die, as he said, and, and he was married to Mary Magdalene, and he had children and all that, and Christians are like, oh, what do we do? What do we do? What, 
Just stick with the Word of God, and, and, you, and if you do the research, you find out that all of that stuff is bogus. I mean, really bogus. I mean, you can't imagine how bogus it is. It's so bogus that even some of the secular reporters can't believe what it's based on if you watch some of the specials. So anyway, Mary Magdalene, slighted and uh, distressed throughout the century. She's just a great gal serving the Lord, not his girlfriend, not his wife. And then there's Joanna, the wife of Herod's steward. Just a, a reminder there that God has believers everywhere. Just when you think nobody could be saved where I work, I'm the only one. God has believers everywhere, and uh, you just need to find them. Just go around every now and then go, hallelujah, and see who responds, you know, and stuff. So you think that's funny, but when we were first traveling in uh, communist China, when we went into communist China to smuggle Bibles, there's a real possibility that you don't make your contact because it's China, and it just weird things happen there. Uh, and so they tell you that, you know, if you're where you're supposed to be and you don't know who your contact is and, and, and you know, just every now and then say hallelujah and they will find you because the average Chinese person isn't in tune with that really and stuff. And so, you know, so just try this tomorrow at work. <laughs> I, I think it'd be kind of cool. Just, you know, just take a sip of coffee and say, Hallelujah. <laughs> now, nothing is known of Susanna or many others except that they provided for Jesus from their substance. Now, here's why I think these verses belong in our story. It's possible the sinful woman was coming to join the women who were ministering to Jesus out of their substance. It could be that she was bringing this very costly alabaster flask of fragrant oil as an offering, not to be broken, but to be brokered, to be sold for cash to help support Jesus and his followers. Instead, motivated by love, she literally poured out her offering upon the Lord. Now, I would never suggest to you that you respond emotionally to an appeal for money or property, or that you give your substance without exercising some discernment as to whether God is leading and where uh, and what the cause is. But having said that, I would suggest that often our offerings are too calculated, that we don't give ourselves room for expressions of spontaneous love for the Lord. There will be times when the Holy Spirit is prompting you to give yourself or your substance to the Lord. And, and uh, it can be as simple as you're on your way somewhere and you think you're in a hurry and you're going to be late, but you just, you know, something comes over you to look over this way and you see somebody and maybe they're crying. And then the Holy Spirit, now you're full into it. The Holy Spirit wants you to go over and, is everything all right? something I can do for you. Oh, man, Lord, I wish I could. And the Lord is all the while saying, oh, I forgave you so much, Gene. Do you, do you want to maximize the forgiveness in your life or do you want to minimize it? And, and uh, oh, Lord, okay. And, and sometimes we're just so, we're so dialed into what we're doing that we're like Simon, we miss these opportunities. Sometimes they involve giving. I mean, you can come to church or to a Christian function with an idea of what you're going to give, and the Holy Spirit could say, what are you, cheapskate? <laughs> I'm never going to say that, but God could say that to you. And, 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 but it's more, less in the area of money that I want to talk about, more in the area of just giving of yourself. Oh, I could never do that. Oh, why not? Why can't you volunteer? Why can't you be there? What, what else do you have to do? I love the that line from uh, the Keith uh, Richards, Keith, uh, what's Keith Green? Keith Richards, yes. same difference. <laughs> but anyway, one of the Keiths, Keith Moon, you know, there's a bunch of those Keith guys that did rock and roll. Keith Green, uh, who said, you know, and I, this is, I mean, I, I would never use it because it's so condemning, but he, he's, I love the line. He says, he says, Jesus rose from the dead, and you can't get out of bed. <laughs> 
You know, I love that. Just think about that, you know. And so, so this is the kind of thing where, you know, just let's be open to, to this kind of a response. I mean, this woman is standing there and she thinks this is, something has to be done for Jesus. Some, something has to be done for the Lord. There, there's a need that the Lord has, and, and I see it. It's this person that has to be spoken to or, or something else. And the more that we have maximized God's forgiveness in our life, the more we're in touch with what hell-doomed, dead sinners we were, regardless of your personal testimony and you think it's good or bad, we're going to be those that God can use in that way and not be like Simon who are just, well, we're just a little bit too refined for that, Lord. I'll tell you another quick story. Uh, it's a story I would have told you if we had time, so let me tell you real quick. But... Uh, <laughs> I was a young Christian. I was a businessman, suit, tie. I was at Raincross Square in Riverside, California, busy place during the lunch hour. And this really old, frail woman was up on the, in the public uh, speaker area. You know, it's like a raised platform preaching, you know, and stuff. And I thought to myself, man, this is what gives Christianity a bad name. Nobody's paying any attention to her, people walking by. And I'm walking by, and the Lord starts talking to me. Gina, I want you to stop and listen to her. Uh, no. <laughs> I mean it. I want you to stop and listen. Uh, no thanks. <laughs> I got in my car, and it got stronger and stronger. You don't know that area, but I got all the way from Raincross Square practically to Corona. And then I started thinking, I'm going to die in a fiery car crash <laughs> any minute now. I'm going to die if I don't, and I go, all right, and so I turned around, and I went back, and, and I stood there, the only audience that she had, and I felt like a fool, a fool, but I started listening to her, right on stuff, Jesus is coming, she's preaching from, you know, the gospel from the book of Revelation, fantastic stuff, real fiery, and then she got done. And she got down and she looked at me and she started talking to me. And she's this just really cool old woman. She's not crazy like I thought. And she just said, you know, the Lord called me to do this. And I come every noon hour and I do it and I'm going to do it until the Lord comes back. And uh, it absolutely changed my thinking about a lot of different things and what I would be willing to do. And I said, Lord, thank you that you only asked me to listen to her and not be her. <laughs> If you minimize God's forgiveness for any reason, you're going to hesitate to show or shower yourself or your substance upon the Lord. If you maximize God's forgiveness, you're not going to hesitate. All that you are and all that you have is available to be poured out for the Lord. The woman in our story, I told you that the letting down of her hair was something only done by a woman for her husband. Do you see the symbolism? The New Testament portrays a relationship with Jesus Christ as a spiritual romance. He is the bridegroom. His church and individual Christians are the bride in that picture. God is romantic. I think we miss an awful lot in the Bible and in our Bible study because we forget that it's full of romantic manuscripts and metaphors and that we need to be ro more romantic. This is why a lot of times people will say, well, women are more spiritual than men. You know why? Because women are more romantic than men. Very few men, there are a few, but very few men say, honey, there's just no romance in our life. <laughs> but women, it's one of the first things that they're taught. <laughs> oh, my little baby is talking. What did she say? in our life. <laughs> but it's true. Now, I hate generalizations, but it's true. There's just no romance. And, and you're a guy, you're like, what? What? <laughs> All right. <laughs> Let's have a date night. <laughs> we'll go down to the sports bar and have a date night. <laughs> And so that's, that's really part of it, is that women, women are, are more romantic, and therefore they're more understanding and, and uh, open to this part of who God really is. 
There are whole books of the Bible that are dedicated to romance. The Song of Solomon, which is, is a story of romantic love. We take the Song of Solomon, and, and not wrongfully, but we take it and make it a manual for marriage. Chapter 1, you know, step 3, buy some spikenard and call your wife by weird names, you know, and stuff. <laughs> and it's just romantic. I mean, you can't understand it any other way. It, it has to be taught romantically and, and understood romantically. And so God is romantic. And you know what? We, this is, we know that God is love. But God is, and that's true, but God is also romantic, and there's a difference. And a lot of times we want to understand God strictly on an intellectual plane, strictly as students learning from a professor. And God says, yeah, that's all good, that's great, you need to know all that, but I'm also in love with you, romantically, deeply in love with you. So much so that when he comes to the church of Ephesus in the book of the Revelation, he says, guys, I love what you're doing. Man, you, you're right on church. You are the right on church there in Ephesus, but you have left your first love. The most important thing, we don't have a romance anymore. It's Jesus. Jesus coming to you as a Christian and me saying, there's no romance in our relationship anymore. Yeah, you're studying the Bible and you're witnessing, you're doing all this stuff, but there's something missing. There's something missing, and that something is the romance. Maybe you're a 500 denarii sinner or a 50 denarii sinner. Maybe you think you're only a 5 denarii sinner. Hey, compared to Gene, I'm pretty good. It doesn't really matter because you had and have nothing by which to repay the debt. It's a level playing field as far as that's concerned. Jesus paid it all. He paid it in full. He did it for love. We recapture romance and return to our first love for the Lord to the extent that we understand how great is the forgiveness of our sins whoever we are. Let's pray. Father, I, I do pray that each of us could contemplate this day and every day the length and height and depth and breadth of your forgiveness of our sins. One sin, one tiny sin, if it were possible for a person to only commit one tiny sin, it would be enough, Lord, to close the gates of heaven forever and eternity. And so, Lord, really doesn't matter the extent or the, the piling up of our sins. Each of us should have the same understanding of how great your forgiveness is. Where would I be today, Lord? Still outside the kingdom, or perhaps not even alive, perhaps already having passed into a Christless eternity, were it not for your love in waiting and then saving me. I thank you for that, Lord, and I pray that it would be magnified again and again and again in my life. Lord, that my testimony, the testimonies of my brothers and sisters would never be minimized. That Each one would be seen as profound and fantastic. And that in our own lives, Lord, we would not throw sin onto an addiction or onto a family situation or onto a genetics or anything like that. Whether those things are involved or not, Lord, that we would recognize sin for what it is and receive your forgiveness from it and the power over it. I thank you for these things and more, Lord. You're a great Savior. We want to be this woman. And though from where we sit here, we, we don't want to think of ourselves as being foolish or being embarrassed or doing things like that, Lord, there's going to be times in our lives when we're going to have to step forward and pour ourselves out for you. Others may not understand it, even other Christians. But Lord, I pray that we would know your love so greatly and so deeply, so romantically, that we would do it, Lord, without hesitation. May we not be among the hesitators. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's stand together. Some of our guys will be down here to pray with you this morning, and I, I really do invite you to come down and receive prayer. Uh, it can be such a healing refreshing time. May God bless and keep you this week as you seek to serve Him. Love to see you on Wednesday night. Uh, it just It's just wonderful, good and pleasant to be among the people of God, to hear the Word of God, to be filled with the Spirit of God. So come on out and join us. God bless you.